Welcome to Bit of Play. It's your occasional video game show about whatever. I'm Dominic Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. Uh, this week we continue in the last part of our Final Fantasy retrospective dealing with the PlayStation 2 and uh, HD Final Fantasies as well as the current state of the series today. So we're, this is going to be our last part as we go through Final Fantasies 10 through 13 and 14 and 15 as soon as we get there. But starting off with the big one, that's Final Fantasy X, released in on July 19th, 2001 in Japan and December 17th, 2001 in North America, it kind of marks the rise of Tetsuya Nomura. Its development began in 1999 and cost about 4 billion yen, approximately, uh, that's approximately 32.3 uh, million dollars, uh, with a crew of about 100 people, with most uh, most of whom who had worked on previous seri- uh, games in the Final Fantasy series. Specifically Final Fantasy VIII. This yes. was started right after Final Fantasy VIII's development finished up. And you got to consider also, like, they're spending 4 billion yen in a, right around the same time that Final Fantasy The Spirits Within is crashing and destroying the company. Yeah, this is right before. This is why Square Enix had absolutely no money going into the PlayStation 2 era. And also kind of why they, they their, de- their development was kind of stunted going into the PS3, but we'll get into that in a bit. Um, producer uh, Yoshi Norikitase was also the chief director of Final Fantasy X, um, and the, di- the direction of events, battle, and maps were split up between Motomu Toriyama, Takayoshi Nakazato, and Toshiro Tsuchida. Now, this is where Toriyama gets his start, and he's going to be, he's, he's kind of responsible for Final Fantasy XIII later on. Um, but he is specifically the battle director. Uh, Kitase, as we talked before, worked on Final Fantasy VI and Seven. Exactly. So, Kazushige Nojima then collaborated with Daisuke uh, Watanabe, um, while uh, Watanabe and on Toriyama and Kitase on writing the scenario for Final Fantasy X. Um, character designer. Tetsuya Nomura, who identified that he kind of wanted to draw from the South Pacific, Thailand, Japan as major influences on the cultural and geographic design of the characters and kind of the way the world looked, in this case being Spira, this um, kind of series of tropical islands or uh, and later big land masses that uh, the world is made up of. Yeah, it's, it's sort of where Nomura got absolute free reign. I think it was, he was the lead character designer on Final Fantasy VIII prior to this. Yes. Uh, but this was kind of when they said, it's like, oh, this guy is really kind of becoming our visual face of Final Fantasy. Let's just let him do whatever we, he wants. So his character designs just got full force. Full, yes. full crazy. Uh, uh, specifically, stuff, there's stuff like... Uh, entire dress made of belts. Yeah, Lulu's dress made of belts. Titus wears a belly shirt, a belly jacket missing one sleeve, and then a pants, I believe, with one long sleeve and one short sleeve. He also has like one buckler and like he has a, like netting as part of his shirt randomly. But for some reason, Yuna just walks around the kimono with combat boots. Yeah, just weird anachronistic uh, just nonsense. Crazy, yeah, crazy character designs. And meanwhile, the world just doesn't fit any of it. No, no, it's... Everybody looks like they belong in just, like, homeless people in Shibuya when they're walking around what looks like weird fantasy Thailand. Honestly, Final Fantasy X can be credited for kind of at least marking what the visual aesthetic of Shibuya would would be yeah yeah at the time I mean this was a little right as that culture was was starting to accelerate and crazy belts hair that just did not belong in human beings zippers that don't actually zip anything they were starting to become popular in like actual fashion thanks to this game now the best part of Final Fantasy um, 
Final Fantasy X is the conditional turn-based battle system, which uh, eliminated a lot of the real-time elements from Final Fantasy X, but replaced them with a layer of strategy. So it's the, probably the slowest-paced battle system aside from like the first game, but because the different attacks changed the turn, turn order, um, and it showed you that turn order, you had to be very careful about what you did. You didn't want the you wanted to be able to do as many attacks as possible before your opponent got a next strike because enemy attacks tend to be fairly hard hitting, and if you let them get a strike on you, they could put a whole bunch of status effects or damage your character in a way that was often kind of irreparable. So it it really did require a level of strategy and stuff like summons became an integral part of battle so they could fight on their own instead of being attack or a boost. The limit breaks were replaced with overdrives, which were basically the same thing, but you could they were more customizable. But the battle system is actually fairly competent for enduring this Final Fantasy game. Yeah, it's it's actually I feel like kind of a fixed version of Final Fantasy VII's battle system, in the same way that the uh, Sphere Grid, which is the kind of leveling up system, is a fixed version of Materia. Yes. Um, the Sphere Grid is basically a path, kind of a board game that let you uh, choose how you progress your character by spending spheres, which yep. you got on leveling up. You could advance however many spaces that you had experience points. Um, it didn't actually have too many diverging paths, uh, and it was actually easy to get lost in ruined character progression, but at the same time, it was better than Materia, which just sort of made everybody the same kind of god at the end of the day. Yeah, it was... It did... Because there was a guided path, it made sure that your character would have a purpose in the party, but say um, you made a wrong turn along the way. You could end up in someone else's part of the sphere grid, and all of a sudden you have your your main scrapper suddenly learning magic attacks. And just because the character's stats up until that point don't match any magic, they're suddenly just super weak and learning the wrong attacks. Um, you could also, though, like break the game by going in and making, say, like um, one of the more useless characters. Um, uh, Kimari learn all the magic attacks before he they even before even the magic user did, um, just because his spear grid went everywhere, um, which was a benefit and a loss depending on how good you I were. I believe the uh, international version that we never got or we will be getting shortly uh, was uh, kind of fixed a lot of the spear grid problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was the also the first Final Fantasy game with voice acting. Um, localization was done by Alexander O. Smith, and he kind of described the process um, of fitting natural-sounding English speak, uh, speech into the game as something akin to writing four or five movies' worth of dialogue entirely in haiku form, and of course the uh, actors had to act and act well within those restraints. But we still got stuff like Titus laughing. Oh, God. Let's, let's just pause for a clip of that. We are all suitably horrified. <laughs> so, what is the legacy of this game? Final Fantasy X is probably my favorite Final Fantasy game. It was also super popular. Final Fantasy continued to be a marquee franchise, and even if the story started becoming increasingly convoluted, this was this looked like Square, especially in a time where they were falling apart due mm -hmm. to Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, looked like their savior. Yeah, the... Um... This is actually Spirits Within kind of messed up the upcoming merger with Enix uh, and delayed that by a couple of years, where Final Fantasy X kind of really gave Enix a lot of renewed a renewed hope that Square was not a dead company that was about to explode because under the weight of, you know, billions upon billions of dollars of debt. Because, I mean, Enix was trying to get Square Enix basically merged the companies when Square would be, sorry, Squaresoft, when Square would be at its weakest. So... 
Just they, uh, it, it, it was the idea that it wouldn't have been a merger if Square was at their week. They would have had yeah. to buy them out, which yeah. was fine for them. But SquareSoft specifically wanted the merger. Yeah, it's it really saved the company. This game also kind of provoked the vanity in Final Fantasy games because it saved the company. Tetsuya Nomura, um, he he rose to the top, and his whole thing though has always been focused on a lot of the visual elements of these games. And as a result, the, that that that, uh, that kind of visual, every, the graphics are the most important thing. The art design is the most important thing. Kind of carries over and sort of becomes the ruining of Final Fantasy Thirteen moving forward, uh, like, which is the next game aside from Kingdom Hearts that Nomura works on on a mainstream Final Fantasy game. Right, and and that's this is also where Nomura becomes because of Kingdom Hearts the absolute face because Final Fantasy Ten and Kingdom Hearts were coming around or out around the same time. Yeah, and these were both kind of you know Auron was there. I think were there other Final Fantasy Ten characters in Kingdom Hearts. Um, they, they mainly for Final Fantasy X they weren't sure at the time of how that was going to do while Kingdom Hearts was in development so they mainly stuck to Titus and Waka and those two stayed as kids characters Orin only showed up in the sequel once they had a better idea of what the series was going to be like right but then we had these kind of these Final Fantasy X characters are representing Final Fantasy in the crossover yeah. game and Final Fantasy X is the most popular Final Fantasy and Nomura's yep. designs are becoming the most important thing and so Nomura sort of becomes the face of Final Fantasy almost, and even the face of Square Enix. Yes. He kind of gets to do whatever he wants. He gets to kind of run roughshod over the company. Um, it is also the first Final Fantasy game with a numbered sequel. Yes, Final Fantasy X-2, despite that making no sense as a title. It's not 12, it's 10-2. It is literally the Roman numeral X-2. Uh, whatever. I anyway. kind of like that game. <laughs> it's fine. It's really silly, and that's the best part about it. Final Fantasy X, unfortunately, its plot is... Uh, Absolutely of... incomprehensible, and it takes itself incredibly seriously. I think it's comprehensible. I just think it takes itself way, way, way too seriously. The Final Fantasy X-2, while on the other hand, was about basically a J-pop group that saved the world, <laughs> and that was pretty good. That was pretty solid. And they dressed up <laughs> as different things, and that's how they beat up people. As long as just you... see the just seeing the Pussycats RPG. Yeah, yeah. As long as you didn't try to take that game with any amount of seriousness, or didn't try to contrast the two. It seemed like a pretty fair sequel to the series. Yeah. Both games are coming out in a bundle for PS3 and Vita in March of 2014. And that's probably your best bet because that is the international edition of both games. So it has we- a bunch of fixes, extra cutscenes, um, updated graphics. Bonus levels, et cetera, et cetera. It's, yeah. it's probably your best bet for them. And I mean, these two, both games kind of, I think, still hold up well enough. Yeah. All right. So for our song for Final Fantasy X, we're going to go for Two Xanarkin, which is probably the, the most memorable song out of that game.
All right, on to Final Fantasy XI. Now, this is going to be a big change, of course, because this is the first MMO that Square will put together. Yeah, back um, back when Final Fantasy IX happened, uh, they announced that they were going to have three Final Fantasy games, Final Fantasy IX being representing Final Fantasy's past, Final Fantasy X representing Final Fantasy's present, and Final Fantasy XI representing the future. Yes. And IX was very much a SNES-style RPG for the PlayStation. X was very much sort of a fixed version of what Seven and Eight wanted to be. And Eleven was something completely different. Eleven was, well, it began with Sakaguchi in in Hawaii working on Spirits Within, and he saw the game EverQuest for the first time, and the, he wanted a he wanted absolutely to have a game that was just like EverQuest with Final Fantasy characters and an MMO. So it was a massively multiplayer online RPG with hundreds of characters across. PlayStation 2 and the PC and eventually the Xbox 360 and used a lot of the Final Fantasy tropes, although the gameplay was a little weird because of you have to deal with time delay and all these different areas and it had to be more... They, you couldn't have random encounters exactly. ever. It had to be much more... It had to be more turn-based and less random. Yeah, yeah. So, so the game was developed by the Chrono Cross team, Chrono Cross being a game that we can't really go into at all. Yeah, Google it on your own time because we can't have another hour to talk about it. Yeah, okay. So And it began... Right around the same time as 10 in 1999. Um, and it was supposed to be able to allow people to meet, and this was the crazy part, between the the PC and the PS2. Which is now a big thing for MMOs that have these uh, cross-console play. Like, every game wants to be able to interact between separate consoles and ecosystems. Exactly. Uh, so that was actually very ahead of its time. Um, the gameplay itself was a mix of the ATB, job system, limit break, and non-random encounters, which they were trying to get rid of, and that would actually move forward into other Final Fantasy games. Um, it worked well enough that it, again, inspired all battle systems for Final Fantasy moving forward. Yeah, I mean, that was... It, the Final Fantasy twelve was kind of similar to how Final Fantasy Eleven worked, and since then they haven't done really... Um, Random, they haven't done random encounters, and they've been trying to get closer to a more uh, action-based system as opposed to having a more turn-based or sit-back system. As far as I know, I think the person responsible for the most part for the battle system is uh, Hiroyuki Ito, yes, who was the uh, battle designer on stuff like Final Fantasy III and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but and he sort of this is kind of where he moves from the traditional Final Fantasies to the MMO world for uh, Final Fantasy XIV as well. Yes, uh, the game cost 2 to 3 billion yen or 17 to 25 million dollars to create along with the play online network service uh, and they assumed it would be popular pr- profitable over a 5 year time span that it's amazing that it cost less than Final Fantasy 10 it's kind of incredible but it's also to some extent considering the the time that they were doing this servers weren't as expensive and the game was really drawing off of a lot of elements so they didn't need to coordinate all that much most of the money would have been spent on the online infrastructure more so than stuff like graphics or design design one thing that was crazy though is they got a whole bunch of composers to come together from all over the final fantasy series to work on that um this the scripting was super lackluster so i mean it basically just told you go there get thing and didn't kill five fans and you will get treasure quest they spent more time on the backstory for that game than they spent ever on the plot within that game um that's a common problem with mmos um the weird thing about final fantasy 11 is that you could actually play it on consoles one of the first uh, console based mmos yeah yeah um and in order to play it on ps2 you needed a hard drive and network adapter which were uh hard to find and garbage even when you did yeah the network adapter for the ps2 never really caught on 
Um, unfortunately, it, because it had a really clunky interface on the PS2, it required a weird kind of expansion to your back of the PS2. And then on the hard drive on top of that kind of needs to be slid into a back bay and then the network adapter being put on top of that. Um, it was a weird system and kind of like a late stage adaption for the uh, PS2. Um, still by 2006, with it, several expansions and another release in the Xbox 360, it was the most. It was announced that Final Fantasy XI was the most popular Square Enix game that they had ever produced and the most profitable, which is amazing. And people still play it, even though uh, Final Fantasy XIV, a sequel MMO, exists. Yeah, but we'll uh, get to its problems in a bit. That's really its legacy. Anyways, Final Fantasy tw- uh, will be going. The we'll have one song for the MMOs, and we'll be getting to that one at the end of Final Fantasy XIV. Let's move on to Final Fantasy XII, which is one of your favorite games, Daniel. Yes, I love it a lot, even though I probably shouldn't. Uh, in order to understand what is everything wrong about this game, we really need to start with the development. We can't really talk about the game itself first. Yeah, so it came out in 2006 on the PS2. Um, it was it started development in 2001 after they had uh, come off of Final Fantasy IX. Uh, Yasumi Matsuno of Final Fantasy Tactics and Ogre Battle was uh, was in charge of the project. Uh, Hiroki Ito, who we mentioned before, had just come off of FF9, was also assigned to the project. Um, I guess to balance Matsuno's madness... Yes. yes. Uh, Matsuno is very famous for intricate battle systems that really only make sense what you once you spend a couple hours with them, whereas Ito is very much kind of about intuitiveness and the ATB. And as a, as a result, they actually made for a fairly good team. The battle system worked pretty well. The battle system does work pretty well, but um, development and development actually went fine for a couple years um, until a combination of Square rejecting Matsuno's ideas and. Uh, Pretty bad, pretty weird business problems uh, threw Matsuno out of Square Enix. Yeah, the marketing t- department told Matsuno that his idea to have the game star Bosch, an older grizzled war veteran, wouldn't work since all the all, since uh, his previous game did so, which was Vagrant Story, and didn't do well enough to justify that decision. After making Balthier a younger character, the protagonist, he was told that Balthier was too ambiguous and in terms of like whether he was good or bad, and was still too old. Um, and this was also the time we have Tetsuya Nomura Rising, and every single Tetsuya Nomura game has a um, vaguely feminine-looking yeah, man. Vaguely 15 to 18 years old, big shoes and zippers, young, youthful, exuberant, happy shonen anime best friend. But they didn't have it didn't have a strong roster of older characters, so they figured that the audience for their games were young guys mm-hmm. who wanted to see more young guys kick butt. Right, and, and Matsuno, coming off of stuff like Final Fantasy Tactics and Ogre Battle, was really into grand stories told about kings and knights who were, they had, you know, these are people in their late 20s, early 30s, early 40s, even getting into their 50s and 60s. Especially since you deal, if you're dealing with noble characters, which you actually were dealing in this game, or you were dealing with characters who were supposed to have, like, this big backstory to them. You couldn't really justify that someone was an amazing sky pirate if they were, like, 15. Right, it didn't make any sense, and Matsuno, was, Matsuno has always been inspired by real-life wars and conflicts and real soldiers and things like that, so it was really hard for him to go and make a 15-year-old character the protagonist. Yeah. Around the same time, a large part of the development team was actually uh, left Square Enix uh, after being poached away by Hironobu Sakaguchi, who had left Square Enix to form his own studio, Mistwalker. And Mistwalker actually went on to make a pretty damn good game. Yeah, Lost Odyssey is the Final Fantasy that Final Fantasy never was. Oh man, Lost Odyssey is so broken, but I love that game so much. <laughs> You're right. But uh, actually, after that happened, Matsuno refused to come to work for a month. 
<laughs> and in 2005, just a year before the game came out, he announced that he was leaving the project due to an illness. But um, Matt Snow actually left Square Enix entirely to work as a freelance writer and game designer. Uh, he ended up, I think, writing the plot for Mad World, the Wii game for Sega, yeah. and making um, Crimson Shroud and is currently working on a card game. Oh, yeah, good for him. Yep. Meanwhile, Square Enix scrambled to reconfigure what was left of the development team to something that could actually make a video game. Um, Hiroyuki Ito stayed as co-director, and Hiroshi um, Minagawa, a close friend of Matsuno's, was promoted from art director to co-director. Akitoshi Kwazu was then brought in as executive director, uh, executive that, producer. And I'm, that's uh, when our troubles began. We've mentioned our uh, our fondness and hatred of Akitoshi Kwazu many times. Uh, Kwazu bend pretty quickly to... I guess, corporate's wills. He made a character who was in the game, a young boy called Vaughn, the protagonist, uh, and tried to help shore up kind of what was unfinished in the gameplay while others fixed up Matsuno's early drafts of the story that nobody had played with yet. Just to remind you where this guy came from, he was a guy who was super into Final Fantasy II, the most broken... Yeah, he was a man who made Final Fantasy II and its incredible system of um, having to hit your own characters to level up. Matsuno's early draft were fixed up by um, Miwa Shoda and later fleshed out by Daisuke Watanabe, who had worked on Final Fantasy X and Kingdom Hearts. And essentially, the insanely complicated um, machinations that serve as the backbone for any Matsuno game gave way to marketing demands and became something simple and more accessible. Every other Final Fantasy game plot. Star, Star Wars. Wars. Uh, Balthier and Fron, two Sky Pirates, assist Bosch, a disgraced knight, in helping Ash, a princess whose kingdom has been taken over by an evil empire. Uh, the evil empire also has Bosch's brother working for them as an evil black-armored judge-slash-executioner. To be fair, this is probably the best execution they have ever done on Star Wars. But it's still Star Wars. It is still Star Wars, even, and they literally have the two characters they added on, Van and Pinello, tag along to be C-Profio and R2-D2. Um, because much of the script is already written and the cutscenes already animated, Vaughn was made into the main character, even though... Have most fans in interpret his absolute uselessness as Matsuno's original script poking fun at Square's insistence at having a young character. Um, Balthier, who was who was the character previously intended to be the character main character, um, makes an incredible amount of references to being the leading man throughout the entire game, mostly because the team didn't have time to edit them out. Yep. Uh, for example, anytime Vaughn does anything, he fails spectacularly, and the rest of the cast laughs at him. Yeah, and yeah. he's supposed to be our hero. And Vaughn didn't have, like, any... Like, he just kind of tagged along and had no real purpose in the game. He was often just... He often just stays in the back of cutscenes and occasionally make comments, mm -hmm. but he would rarely add anything to the yeah, game. Yeah, he would sometimes say, like, a fact about the place there and, like, oh, boy, it sure is cold here. Yes, Vaughn, it's cold because exposition. Yeah, yeah. Like, he was... Absolutely, it was very clear that Vaughn was entered at a, it was put in at a late stage in the game development. Yeah, uh, gameplay-wise, much of the game was actually set from the beginning, continuing from Final Fantasy's uh, thing of getting rid of random encounters. It used kind of an MMO-style battle system that combined ATB with Masano-style complicated game breaking and incomprehensible tactics. The characters worked off gambits, which are AI subroutines that you can equip to them to make them do certain things depending on the conditions. For instance, if a character is below fifty percent health, you could put in a gambit that would say, okay, cast fire on all enemies, or if they're below, or if they're... Well, it, it was something like, if ally is, is... below 50%, then use cure. Yeah. If enemy is in front of you and weak to fire, use fire. fire. 
and they could become increasingly complex. You had something like 25 Gambit slots, and you were continuously unlocking Gambits throughout the game, like different ways you could program things into. You were basically making a miniature game, or you were making your own AI subroutines at some point in this. Uh, Basically, this amounted to super complicated AI programming at the end, which was the game itself, but once you kind of hit start on the AI, the game played itself for you, which left a lot of Final Fantasy fans kind of disappointed in it. But really, it did allow a lot of strategy. That was the key part of the game. That even if you were kind of playing behind the scenes, the gambit, seeing your gambits pay off was also kind of a reward it was in sort itself. Of, it was sort of designed that you would go into a fight, kind of scope it out, and then program your gambits, and then just watch it all fall around you. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of like a dom- It was dominoes rather than chess. It was interesting. Um, the game featured a license board, which offered the same flexibility and openness of a job system, but unfortunately without much explanation. It was somehow a, br- a more broken version of the spear grid. In- which, <laughs> instead yeah. of uh, giving one spear grid that everybody had to move across, it gave each person their own separate board with different... But everybody had a different kind of board with the same stuff on it, and you never knew what was next on the board. It was randomness at its worst, so you never knew what kind of character you were building. Unless you'd already seen all the boards prior. Exactly. So it looked... You really didn't know what kind of character you were building. You could end up by accident with a bunch of healers or a bu- no healers and everyone having um, just all brute uh, weapons, uh, atta- like what, attacking with long-range weapons or so something. To be fair, most of the game is kind of built around that idea yeah. because a lot of the time characters like uh, Balthier should never be using the gun that he comes equipped with because he's actually terrible with guns. Yeah, which... I don't know how that happened. <laughs> the, the thing that he always uses in cutscene is actually the worst thing he has. But, you know, do it. No, Vaughn's actually, I think, the best with guns, because sure, why not? <sighs> the International Zodiac System edition of the game, which only came out in Japan, fixed this by having job-specific license boards that were actually way easier to navigate. But that never came out in North America, because we aren't allowed to have nice things. It was actually really good, because you it gave you basically an idea of, okay, this is what this specific board is for. You should be looking for these things, and this board is going to have much more, like, magic stuff. Yeah, here is the white mage board, here is the black mage board, here is the fighter board, here is the knight board. You can buy, here's, you should be looking, if you have the black mage board, you probably shouldn't be, like, focusing on any strength things it gives you. Make sure you're always looking for more magic attacks. But anyway, um... According to Minagata, several ideas were dropped due to hardware limitations and time constraints, i.e. having to finish the entire game in one year, even though they had half of it done. Um... There was a multiplayer mode considered and multi-faction battles, but they were dropped when they realized the PS2 probably couldn't actually handle it. This is actually the second time that they have dropped multiplayer aspects. In Final Fantasy X, they also hoped to have um, a multiplayer portion to the game, but it just didn't work out. PS2 could not handle it. No head-to-head Blitzball? Yeah, they had to have Blitzball. They had to have that dumb sports game inside a sphere that you could spend half your time on and needed in order to get the best weapon in the game. Anyway, um... The PS2 also barely handles the game world sometimes, which is one of the most impressive-looking things on the PS2. Um, artists Izamu um, Kamikoku Ryo um, and Hideo Maniba say that they were inspired by Arabic culture, and it really shows, along with Mediterranean architecture and designing the world. You can see the Arabics in mm-hmm. a lot of the character designs and the way that they're dressed and kind of the... Um, one hundred, one thousand, one nights. Yeah, um, well, it's a very the whole world's a very desert world, and so everybody's everybody kind of the whole thing has this very Arabic theme to it until you get to the port cities, which have this sort of again Arabic Mediterranean vibe to them. Yeah. The cities are absolutely enormous. 
Like, there are hundreds upon hundreds of NPCs just walking around doing whatever. Um, and it kind of gives the whole thing kind of this, this kind of, you know, the, the kind of the Arabic Golden Age feel to the entire game. And it's a, it's a really unique thing that games never really explore. One thing, like, in it, it was also very good at kind of ambient storytelling in a way because it really felt this place. It really felt like this place was fleshed out. Like yeah. you, you never came across you. Well, you never you came across NPCs who were just there to go shopping, or you were just, that weren't there just to help you. Yeah, they wouldn't give you like a specific line of dialogue. Every NPC wasn't there to talk to you. Most of them were just kind of walking around and having conversations themselves. And it was one of the first, at least JRPGs, that really got that idea of hey, not every NPC has to be there for the player. Exactly, and in doing so, we really got the first version of Evilise, which is the world that this is set in that looked like a um an looked, actual world yeah yeah um for a time final fantasy 12 had the longest development time of any game ever it took six years to make uh which explains a lot of the game's weirder problems uh for example like the license board being absolutely terrible and the game just ending and most of the final chapter being told through cutscenes and exposition yeah now final fantasy 12 did have an actual sequel called final fantasy 12 revenant wings which was on the ds and followed vaughn his new career as a sky pirate it was the first in the ivalice alliance series of games um, which were canned after Matsuno's departure soured uh, square enix on returning to ivalice but they did get a couple games out of yeah um, we got final fantasy tactics remake final fantasy tax advanced uh, tactics advanced to a playstation a playstation 3 re-release of vagrant story and revenant wings so they, they managed to squeeze that pig as much as they could. Um, Sw- Swedish developer Grin, makers of Bionic Commando and famous for crashing almost every project they worked on, um, worked on an action RPG spin-off called Fortress, which tasks the New Kingdom formed at the end of Final Fantasy XII in defending a fortress from Viking invaders. Uh, after Square refused to pay the money they owed Grin for meeting the development milestones, milestones um, Grin's Bionic Commando reboot was a flop, and without any money left, Grin shut down, canceling Fortress with them. Yeah, um, that's basically it for Final Fantasy XII's legacy, too. Like, because Masano left it and Kawaz- and Kawazu's kind of a cantankerous man, I don't think they really want to admit it happened. Yeah, it kind of, it's one of the few Final Fantasies with an utter dead end to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike, Final Fantasy IX felt more like a culmination, kind of like, this is the best we're going to execute on this old Final Fantasy one. but the this very much felt like it had a lot more to go. It was a weird offshoot of the MMOs, and it just kind of stopped, when it really could have been, it really could have, you know, had more player agency in it and really been something special. Uh, okay, but the song for this one, we're going with Dalmasca, Esther Sand. Uh, because with... this game has incredibly complicated uh, <laughs> localization. But it's actually a pretty damn good song.
Here's the big one. Here's the one that we have been waiting for since we started this podcast. It's Final Fantasy 13, which came out on PS3 and Xbox 360 in 2009. Yay! This is the gates of death for Final <laughs> Fantasy. This is where... Everything went into the muck, into the toilet, swirling around the <laughs> this drain. Is, this is the death of Square Enix, I think, right here. And yeah. I, I don't want to call it too early, but I really do think if Square Enix uh, shuts down in the next couple of years, I think we can really point our fingers at this game and say, this is why. Look at what you did. Like, straight up, this was absolute madness. So, development began in 2004 after Final Fantasy X-2. Um, uh, Motomu um, Toriyama... Tor- who was the director of Ten Two and the uh, writer of the Cloud Aerith romance of all things? I'm putting my thumbs up. Um, <laughs> our and our pal uh, Kazushige Nojima were assigned to the project to work on story concepts. Nojima came up with the idea of returning to the Crystals mythology, and then together they came up with the idea of that character being. At the mercy of unfair fates. And then it got nuts. It got really crazy. The game actually started on PS2, but after a uh, really fancy Final Fantasy VII-themed tech demo for PS3, development was shifted to next-gen systems. Uh, Square realized that they had no idea how to do this. Um, the PS3 was just coming out. They literally, they had made that tech demo as a way of saying, hey, look what we can do. And then it was a cutscene. Like, they didn't have yeah. any gameplay elements. They didn't know how to deal with the PS3's was... notoriously complex cell processor. processor. And so they just kind of dived in without any clue of what they were doing. Right. So they started working on a set of next-gen engine tools called the Crystal Tools, um, which delayed the game significantly. But Square felt that having a general-purpose engine to move into next-gen would pay off. No. It it should have. It really should have. That wasn't a bad idea. No, because, well, the thing is, the problem, and this actually, like, the other engines um, companies at the time had the had a very similar problem that Square ran into, and that's the PS3 is really hard to develop for. Right. The cell processor is sort of this weird thing of eight different CPUs working in conjunction, and you have to be programming for all of them at once, or you're not getting the full, you know, juice out of it. And as a result, so, for instance... Epic just bit the bullet, and they made sure that they didn't they didn't develop um, Unreal the Unreal Engine for PS3 for a very, like correctly they didn't bother yep. all early Unreal Engine Unreal Engine three games for the PS3 were busted because they were like we're just gonna release these games and pray to God that they work. Something doesn't just explode when it turns on. Square Enix came from the opposite angle. Instead of being like uh, Epic and starting on the 360, they started on the PS3 and that shot themselves in the in the legs because they were just got absorbed in trying to get the PS3 working. Right. Um, so yes, this engine totally didn't pan out. Uh, around this time, Nojima, Toriyama, and scenario writer Daisuke Watanabe came up with the idea for the Fabula Novala Crystallis universe, a set of stories that would play, us acro- play out across the world of FF13, uh, kind of as a follow-up to Final Fantasy X and X2. And kind of like the failed uh, Ivalice Alliance they had trying to retroactively put in place. Exactly. Also World of Mana, which the, all three concepts were happening at the same time, and all of them failed spectacularly. <sighs> Fair, uh, Final when Fantasy, will they learn? They, I don't yeah, they're still trying. Um, that this this technically still exists. Um, when Final Fantasy Thirteen was officially announced in 2006 at E3, it was announced alongside Final Fantasy Versus Thirteen, which we'll get back to, and Final Fantasy Agito Thirteen. Um, these games were not linked in terms of story, but were thematically connected and were supposed to exist in the same world at different points in time. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, because the engine tools are still in development, the team was just split up into even smaller teams. Uh, Map designers were all split up into smaller, tiny map design teams, each team working on a different map. Um, And this was done so teams wouldn't reuse assets because uh, I believe Square said it would make for a much more impressive world. 
but it also made it so much more expensive because because they weren't being efficient with their design process. Um, it could have made for a much more impressive world, but instead they had to make a lot of shortcuts. It was in just the made end. for an incredibly expensive world, yeah, and one yeah. that started looking really just not that pretty even a year out. Um, Tessie Nomura was again in charge of character and world design, ruling over the game's art style with his zippered fists. Uh, Toriyama told Nomura that the main character should be a beautiful cloud strife. <laughs> Nomura also got so enamored with working on the intricate features on the next-gen systems that allowed these main characters to have, he didn't do much work on NPCs, leaving those to the other artists. Um, this is also why Lightning has a weird scarf that tails out of nowhere, and Snow's, and Snow's coat billows, and you can see every poor and weird unshaven scruff on his face. It's like the the game Heavenly Sword, which came out very early on in the PS3's uh, cycle. The um, That game was utter... The big feature of that game was the graphics of the main character's hair. Because the PS3 could render all the details of this lady's hair. And Nomura got like that for almost every character that he designed. Right, which is why I, I believe that's that's probably why Saj has um, has an afro that a chocobo can pop out of. Because look at how impressive we can do this. We can design individual afros. <laughs> Toshiro Tsuchida, uh, Tsuchida returned as battle designer from Final Fantasy X and was inspired to create fights that looked more like the ones in Advent Children. Which was an ironic twist considering that he designed a very uh, slow-paced battle system for um, Final Fantasy X. Well, originally one thing it was supposed to be was, if you ever saw the the cutscenes, they were supposed to have a a gravity-based fighting system where you could flip onto the ceiling and flip across the side of the walls and... If you looked at that, that uh, if you looked at that screenshot that came out when they first announced it, they had one of the elements that she was using was just straight up gravity, right. and the idea was that you'd run across the wall, then hitch to like one surface, and then get an advantage based on what surface you were on. Right. That's actually why Lightning still has this weird, like shieldy looking thing on her hip. That was supposed to be the weapon she'd use to switch services, but that turned out to be incredibly complex, and they never finished that. Right. Um, but that was definitely taken a page right out of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, the film sequel to Final Fantasy VII that we won't talk about for dare of uh, it haunting us for the rest of our lives. Oh, God. Um... The paradigm switching job, uh, job, sorry, the paradigm job switching system and the lack of magic costs were implemented to keep battles moving quickly and cinematic, although it didn't quite work. It was kind of similar to Final Fantasy XII in that um, you kind of end up letting battles play themselves out, right? Because you just, sort it was, of, you just had to hold, hit A A A A A and let the auto battle do its thing. Yeah, because there was just not enough time um, to to do that. Yeah, uh, it's the the system is action based with a draws with attacks drawing from an ever charging ATB bar, stronger attacks. Would drain more ATB resource, but they'd recharge soon after. So battles are about comboing an enemy until you uh, break their guard and then stun them for more damage. Uh, additionally, characters can change jobs by switching paradigms mid-battle, um, ch- preset formations. They, and These paradigms are basically like different sets of skills that they could use. Um, the uh, There were six paradigms, each corresponding to what they would do. So there was a Ravager, a ravager attacks, a Medic heals. Um, the four battle paradigms can be set up, and they can be swapped out using the shoulder buttons. Um, the battle st- system stands out as most unique and probably the best part of Final Fantasy XIII, though it's held back by slowly dripping out the features over a literally 24-hour tutorial. That's not even a joke. The tutorial takes an entire day if you don't stop. Um, because so much effort was put into the design of the world and making it look as good as possible, maps weren't actually designed with exploration in mind for the most part. So dungeons mostly took the form of straight corridors littered with enemies and treasures along the way. 
the the other problem was also that because they were slowly slowly running out of money they didn't have time to put together a more elaborate world so these map designers were put together in like a lot of straight hallways yep that just got you from point a to point b they sure were pretty straight hallways though yeah, um, the game was also slave to this massive story, a 13-chapter story um, that was very clear that did not make a lick of sense. Early on, you were running um, you were running between switches in order to play out these 10-minute cutscenes over and over again to show off the party switching mechanic, which is mostly just a plot contrivance. Yeah, hey, run over to this switch with vanille, hit the switch, now you're going to be snow, here's a cutscene, now walk over to this switch with snow, now you're vanille, here's a cutscene. <sighs> Nojima and Toriyama wanted to make sure each character got their chance in the spotlight, so each chapter had a focus of one of the main characters. Of course, the characters are mostly pot devices to move along this grand world-encompassing battle of gods, and doesn't really develop as they are servants of fate. So the servant, the fate aspects just made the characters incredible, like have zero motivation right. for what they were doing. They have no character development, they don't have a reason to do anything, they just, they just do things because, oh, we have to do the thing. At best, the characters got increasingly desperate, and that's literally the only character development we got out of them. Yeah, we'd be hard-pressed to tell you anything about the plot. Uh, I could not tell you what Elysi, CF, or Falsy are. I don't know what the difference between them is. Uh, But the game insists that they are things, without ever making it super clear what those things are. Uh, Unfortunately, as we mentioned before, the characters are not nearly strong enough to carry the plot. Yeah, yeah, um... The, now, the game does open up with a big world towards the area end where the, when the party reaches the Grand Pulse. Um, side quests and exploration become available around the time the tutorial ends, but that's all 24 hours into the game. Um, once they finally got to the big city, it was... Gr- once they finally all got into the big city, it was actually really cool to see, and you had this big environment to get through. But you only had this one hub. Like again, compare this to Final Fantasy XII, where every city, every area, kind of felt alive. Right. In a way, you just have this big dead world of hallways. Yeah. <laughs> hallways yeah. and cutscenes. The game was actually received well by most outlets, but scores were lower than expected for a Final Fantasy game, uh, and fans were very frustrated by the game's linearity and the aforementioned twenty-four hour tutorial. It yeah, it's only sold about six point six million worldwide, which would be a great number by most accounts, but not for Final Fantasy XIII's tortured development. No. Um, in reaction to the criticism, Toriyama said that people were approaching the game with a Western sensibility and shouldn't go in expecting an open world in the first place. Meanwhile, Kitase wants on a very different uh, train of madness, saying that Final Fantasy XIII was more like an FPS, a first-person shooter, than a role-playing game. Uh, anyway, since then, they've had to bank on a whole bunch of other games and kind of kill some of the games that they were working on. So things like Ajito 13. Ajito became uh, Final Fantasy Type-0, um, which came out on PS- PSP and turned out to be an okay game. It yep. looked like it was it was, it was was fairly solid. Um, Final Fantasy Versus 13 straight up never came out. No. It has been renamed Final Fantasy 15 and repositioned as a next-gen game, just like Final Fantasy 13 was, uh, with Tetsuya Nomura directing, Nojima writing, uh, and Toriyama nowhere to be found. Because someone had to take the fall for this game, and it wasn't going to be no, uh, Nomura. Um... The Crystal Tools engine was then used for Final Fantasy XIII 2 and the upcoming Lightning Returns Final Fantasy XIII 3. Um, after Square's uh, insistence on never reusing assets, we now have three games using the exact same assets, battle system, and engine in a desperate bid to make all of that money worthwhile. Yeah, Final- Square Enix has never gone public on how much Final Fantasy XIII cost, but it has been rumored that it is one of the most expensive games ever made. Just consider... Um, 
what the, just consider the desperate the desperate points they've been got, going to. They picked up Eidos since then to in order to get better international publishing. They um. And then they've been blaming Eidos for all of their losses. When Even game- though they're singularly responsible for them, the Eidos games are doing about as well as you'd expect the Eidos games to. And they're doing fairly successfully. Like Tomb Raider um, sold quite a bit. Yeah, not well, enough for six million. Six yeah. million. It's not enough. Yep. This, it's six million again. Like that was shockingly high, actually. Like we same with Sleeping Dogs, where they picked it up as an open world um, game set in Hong Kong, did not do well enough. And that's but that was still like three million units, four million units. Just it, it's not enough. Square Enix is hemorrhaging money so fast now because they dumped so much cash into Final Fantasy XIII. Yeah. And, and it, I think the pro and one of the biggest problems is like if you play thirteen three, if you play Lightning Returns, at least a demo, it looks really bad. It looks like a game from two thousand nine because yeah. it is. You guys spent so much money making these assets, and now they don't actually look that good anymore. All right, before we get to their next game, Final Fantasy fourteen, which did not help them at all. Uh, we'll go to the song "Blinded by Light," which is Lightning's battle theme. One of these, one of these stellar parts. Yeah, the, the, the soundtrack of Final Fantasy III is pretty rad, except for the parts which are just like Final Fantasy VII, just weird percussion. <laughs>
All right, Final Fantasy XIV, released in 2010 and August 2013. Four reasons we'll get into. Square Enix does not have a time machine, don't worry. Uh, so We're in... safe for now. <laughs> so in 2006, Squaresoft, now Square Enix, announced a new MMO for... 2009, 2009. So in 2009, Square Enix announced a new MMO for the PC and PS3. Um, Final Fantasy Fourteen, confusingly enough, um, not Final Fantasy Eleven Two. In charge was going to be relatively new newcomer Nobuyaki uh, Komoto and Hiromichi Tanaka as the director and producer, respectively. Tanaka being a Final Fantasy one veteran since Final Fantasy One. He was one of he's he used to be one of the longest lasting employees at the company. Right. Um, he, I believe, at that point, it was just him and Akitoshi Kawazu. Oh no, Koichi Ishii was still at the company yes. at this time. Yes. So there were th- he was one of the three members of the original seven Final Fantasy developers. Who so, are still at the company. Yeah, yeah. Now, this game had a really weird development cycle in that it wasn't particularly troubled, but it just it's seemed... W- it's weird that they're not troubled now, right? No, it was it was fairly simple, but the problem was just a lot of, a lot of kind of hubris on everyone involved. So, uh, it entered beta on the PC in 2010, and the PS3 version was supposed to come a little later. But early on, it was fairly clear that the game was broken. The, there was game-crashing bugs, the controls were abysmal, and the game was sluggish at best. Even when it worked, there was nothing to do. There was no end-game content. And even once you seemed to get relatively close to the final levels, it just looked like the game ran out of, ran out of stuff. Yeah, they just they just designed nothing for this game. And not just, like, just didn't design quests. Like, they just didn't design, straight up didn't design assets sometimes. And so as a result... They, like it, it looked very early that this game was going to be terrible, especially since the beta ended a month early, and Square ended up releasing the game to a massive amount of backlash. No one actually had to pay that monthly subscription until January of the following year, and Hiromichi Tanaka resigned in embarrassment while Nobuyaki Komodo was switched off the project to somewhere where he could do no more harm. Uh, it was bad. The su- the subscription-based game that was supposed to make most of its money back and also kind of help recover the cost for Final Fantasy XIII was put in, was basically put out of commission for several years. And it was not ridiculous. It was. It, it, we have to talk a bit about the state of MMOs. It wasn't ridiculous to think that you would imagine because Final Fantasy XI was, doing, was still doing so well and still being so amazingly profitable for Square Enix. But at the same time, like, MMOs were dying in yeah. 2010. They were losing their last legs. Like, the, even World of Warcraft was dropping from, what, like, 12 million down to 4 million? And that was considered, like, when it when they were at 12 million, that was considered the maximum. That was considered the height, mm-hmm. right? It was, how could you ever get more than that? And Square was banking for maybe 2, 3 million, like, 2, 3, 4 million people. Right. When... When now World of Warcraft's cap is 4.4 exactly. million. Exactly. Right? This is not... They, they were not in good shape. This was not a good time for a subscription-based MMO in particular. I believe when that game came out, everybody's saying, oh, I'll just wait till it goes free-to-play. Exactly. Because every MMO was going free-to-play. Star Trek Online was going free-to-play. Star Wars... Uh, Star, the Old Republic was going free-to-play. Everything. Any MMO you were releasing was just going to go free-to-play. So... It was it was really rough that this game not only was in a time of bad like bad turmoil for MMOs, it came out when it came out broken and literally unplayable. No one could get through that game without experiencing some kind of terrible bug or control issue, and they trashed the whole project. In 2011, they announced they were going to replace it with an entirely new game. 
yeah, they were going to release it with a game called Final Fantasy XIV, A Realm Reborn, and they released a public cutscene, essentially, where uh, Tiamat, a giant flying dragon, destroyed the world. They basically made an entire new game, though. Yeah, no, it literally, they didn't reuse en- the game engine, they didn't use the graphics engine, and they kind of got some assets pulled back in, but literally... Uh, a, nothing. Yeah, nothing, nothing at all, yeah. which is incredible, because now Final Fantasy XIV has cost the cost of two video games. It's... It's utterly insane. Now, the guy who ended up replaced the, replacing Tanaka was uh, Naoki Yoshida, which was the planning chief on Dragon Quest Nine. Won an absolute gang, which sold absolute yes, gangbusters. Dragon Quest Nine was a spectacular game and actually had a lot of really cool proto MMO features on the DS. Yeah, Dragon Quest Nine was so popular that I think they. Uh, it, it was basically the for the percentage of people who bought it. It was something like imagine if like a quarter of all of the United States picked up a copy of Madden. Dragon Quest was so popular that I believe Street Pass exists because of Dragon Quest Nine. Yeah, more or less. It's absolutely fascinating what that game did, and it was kind of it made sense to put this guy on this project. But when he came on, he had this to say. We had server troubles, technical troubles, a lack of international marketing and research, a lack of communication with gamers. There are, were many problems, but they were all caused by the general idea that we're okay. It's the Final Fantasy brand. We have, we make we made Final Fantasy XI work, which is the mentality of every Final Fantasy game but, that they've had so far. Yes, that's been the mentality since, I think, twelve. We can yeah. just release this broken and buggy and unfinished or terrible and linear and no one's going to enjoy it and confusing. It's okay. It's Final fancy it will sell they've poisoned the well at this point yeah. final fantasy 14 did so terribly at that point that it was really incredible final fantasy 14 is now moderately popular it has 1.5 million players and a generally positive reception that's a quarter of what world of warcraft has that's incredible for a subscription-based mmo these days oh no absolutely it's uh, it's fascinating that they managed to get this much most of their most of their fans are obviously in japan but uh, they have a sizable audience here and reviews were positive most of them stuck around the eights um it's it's incredible that this game is doing anything at all considering that the well is poisoned and we're going to get to that in a second but that's going to come after the song and for the song, we're going to go to the Final Fantasy XI opening theme. It does a bit of a callback from the prelude, and is actually a nice send-off for the series. I rather enjoy it. Bye. 
So let's go into Final Fantasy today. What are we left with? What are we going to be suffering with in the next few years? So as we mentioned, the generation was pretty much marked by Square constantly disappointing both their fans and their investors. We had spectacular failures outside of Final Fantasy, like Infinite Undiscovery and The Last Remnant, if you remember either of those ones. Um, Last Remnant was Infinite Undiscovery, which is the boring, boring game that didn't quite work. Whereas Infinite Undiscovery was a buggy, broken piece of garbage. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, well, The Last Remnant was... Oh, God damn it. Like, that was bad. Um, um, it was also coupled with moderate disappointments, like the constant stream of Kingdom Hearts spinoffs, but never a sequel. For some reason, they, Square thought it'd be smart to put a whole, to build the mythology of Kingdom Hearts by putting out new games that were eventually critical to the game's storyline, but all took place on the DS or the PS. Or, or cell phones. Like, it, Not smartphones, cell phones. Which eventually had to be re-released in the United States on different platforms. For instance, the, they end up re-releasing uh, the Game Boy Advance game for the PS2 because no one had played that game and yet suddenly that thing had become integral yeah, that, to Kingdom Hearts 2. You had to under play it to understand what was happening. Um, most of Square's recent output has now basically become re-releasing their back catalog for virtual console, PlayStation Classics, and making remakes for DS and PSP, alongside the games from their IDOS division, which is probably single-handedly keeping them afloat. No, straight up. Tomb Raider, Sleeping Dogs, those were pretty good successes, um, regardless of what Square Enix said. Um, if they weren't for those games doing as well as they did, Deus Ex Human Revolution, um, Hitman Absolution, yeah, Hitman Absolution, those games would not be uh, the Square, Square Enix would not exist right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Final Fantasy's always had two or three major games a generation. Uh, what was Square pumping out games year after year, as we mentioned the first six, you know, in the first episode of this, but twelve and 13's combined decade of development time took a huge toll on Square Enix, both financially and creatively. Um, from the original Final Fantasy 1 team, the only person left is Akitoshi Kawazu, who's a, a certified madman. Yeah, like, if he ends up on development for your game, he it's it's literally like having a fire rat attempt to um, work in a nuclear plant. It's not great. You're going to get something really spectacular and interesting, but it's probably not going to be very fun. Yeah. Uh, with three Final Fantasy 13 games, not lighting the world on fire, an MMO they are currently scrambling to salvage and another 13 spinoff on the way as 15 a Kingdom Hearts game that's too far away to be a comforting taunt to them Square Enix doesn't look so good and so one of the things that was great about the merger when it happened was that they had the Dragon Quest franchise which was a big deal in Japan. It never really sold until 8 in the United States or the rest of the world but they were that was a solid for a long time solid brand. You could not find a Dragon Quest game that did not do well until um, the Dragon Quest X MMO came out and pretty much flopped entirely. Which is the in Japan, which is the only region it could theoretically do well, and they haven't even thought about releasing it here because it would just be a massive disaster. Especially since it's on the Wii, it's <laughs> a Wii and Wii U MMO. It's on PC now. Oh, that's good. I believe that's... they ported it to PC. That's good. So those those after three years. Those Wii audiences can finally stop, like, having terrible um, pains in their hands from attempting to shake the Wiimote to do things. Yep. Uh, Final Fantasy's original output this generation has mostly been Theaterism and Dissidia, which are essentially, like, Super Smash Bros.-style crossover games. Uh, Dissidia is a fighting game with a loose interpretation of the 13 battle system, and Theaterism is a, uh, basically, Elite Beat Agent-style rhythm game. Yeah, which is actually pretty solid. Yeah, it's a 3D, it's 3D iOS. It's actually been a pretty solid success, sold well enough to get a sequel, and presumably it doesn't cost a lot to develop considering it's, you know, all it is is just note-tracking old songs. 
Meanwhile, Dissidia, which is a PSP game, has also gotten the mostly similar sequel that attempts to tie all of the Final Fantasy games together into a multiverse. It's bad. It's really bad. It's goofy and overwrought. But the games are, again, made cheaply by repurposing old assets, and the sequel adds nothing but a few characters and system tweaks. Um, it has gotten a reception as being fun to play, just because the, the fights are flashy, and while it's a bit tricky once you get a hold of the battle system, it seems to be um, fairly popular. With... I like I like watching YouTube videos of Kefka taunting other characters. That's pretty much all I'm there for. Yeah, it's fun. The Additionally, Square Enix has been making a pretty penny on iOS for... Um, on iOS and Android releases of their Nintendo and Super Nintendo Final Fantasy games. They're bad and overpriced, and you probably shouldn't play them. Don't, don't do that to yourself. Just don't, don't. But that's 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 the sad state of Square Enix today. That or Final Fantasy today. It, they're cheaply made games, banking on fan nostalgia, and uh, riddled with DLC. Such is the state of Final Fantasy. We have Final Fantasy 15 that's coming on its way. That's another Nomura joint. Yep, Nomura, Nomura's fully in charge. It's the only, first Final Fantasy game that he's fully in charge of that is not a Kingdom Hearts. And he has trouble getting a Kingdom Hearts game out. I can't imagine how Final Fantasy 15 is going to come out. You know what? They're just gonna let it. I've made this joke before, but they're gonna let it last until Final Fa until the next console, and then they'll just make Final Fantasy 16. They'll just rename it Final Fantasy 16. Yeah, because that's what's gonna happen. Just need to repackage it. What happened to Final Fantasy? It's like uh, Leisure Suit Larry Ford doesn't exist. Yeah, they just, they just keep mentioning it. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna sign off with the Final Fantasy One ending theme, which was from the GBA version. All right, thanks for listening. I'm Armin Bali. I'm Daniel Rosen. Don't ask us about Final Fantasy 13. <laughs>